everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today, our conversation will focus on how investors should start thinking about positioning for a post-pandemic world, including a look at some long-standing economic and investment trends that have taken a backseat during the pandemic period and whether these trends might be relevant going forward. Joining me here on the line for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas, as well as Laura Kane, Head of Thematic Research Americas from the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, Laura, great to be with you both on this Monday morning. Looking forward to our conversation and to diving into some of these topics with you today. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Absolutely. So Jason, I know the April UBS House View was recently released, and within the piece, it does spend some time talking about the reversion trade in context to the dominant short-term pandemic-driven trends that are opposite the longer-term trends we have seen over the past decade or so. So, Jason, can you remind us what those longer-term trends are? Are they still intact from your vantage point? And if they are, how much runway might this reversion still have? So, Dan, what we refer to by kind of the reversion trade or the long-term trend really is another way of saying kind of the secular stagnation thesis or macro environment that we've been in for really the past decade prior to the, the pandemic beginning. And this is an economic environment that such is characterized by the combination of low growth, low inflation, and low rates. Uh, and so that's how we kind of came into the pandemic. We know that, you know, starting really already right now, but definitely moving into the second quarter of this year, that the first two of those characteristics, kind of low growth, low inflation, are going to, you know, we're going to kind of reverse that in pretty significant ways. So, for instance, you know, GDP growth has averaged basically 2% thereabouts for, you know, the decade prior to, to 2020. In the second quarter of this year, you know, we're forecasting, you know, GDP growth just for the quarter that could be like, you know, 10, 11%. So very, very significant uptick. Uh, inflation we know is going to rise in the second quarter, partly just because of the year-over-year effects. Last year, this is when we were sort of in the depth of the, the pandemic starting right around now into April. So a lot of prices fell. So just now things are normalizing. We're going to see kind of inflation measures uh, be up at 3, 3.5%. Three so they forgot to headline CPI. So we will see for at least a short period of time, uh, you know, a couple of quarters, you know, potentially longer, very strong acceleration in growth above the long-term trend. The same thing on inflation. Uh, we've seen a bit of an uptick in rates, but really not to the level of what we're, not, we're talking about for, for growth and inflation. So we're, we'll see this sort of acceleration, this cyclical recovery. I guess the key question then is, you know, how long does this last? How long does this runway, as you refer to it, before we potentially go back to this long-term trend? On the growth front, I think we're going to have higher confidence that growth this year is going to be very strong. You know, we're looking at at least 6%. I think, you know, a number of forecasters are ticking up towards 7 8% GDP growth in the U.S., uh, which would be the highest, you know, about 35 years. Even as we look into next year, there's still going to be kind of residual effect of a lot of stimulus that's taking place this year. So next year's GDP growth could be, you know, 3 to 4%. Uh, when you add in inflation of over 2 to 3%, you know, this is very behind sort of nominal GDP growth. So in terms of the cyclical trade, given this macro environment that should continue well into next year, I think the this kind of reversion trade could last easily six months, you know, 12 months, possibly even longer. That's the reason why, at least in the House View update, we did make one sort of, you know, notable change to our preferences, which was to upgrade large cap value stocks, which had been to the least preferred to a neutral status. So it's not an outright strong bullish call on, on value, but we still have large cap growth as least preferred. So we have now introduced a relative preference for value versus growth. Uh, you know, not a pound the table, you know, value over growth, but definitely tilting that direction. 
in part because this is an environment, this macro environment I described, that should be very, could be conducive to you know, value outperforming growth, which we has thus far, and we can think it's going to continue going forward, as well as some of the more cyclical parts of the market, such as the small cap stocks in certain sectors. Then the key question is how long will this recovery trade last, and is, you know, if the long-term trend is that still intact? Um, you know, I think for now, I think you could see that you know our, the regime of low growth, low inflation, low rates still is the right sort of you know baseline you know uh, formation or thinking how you should think about the markets. Uh, what we're seeing now is a cyclical recovery. There is potential, given this very dramatic policy on the fiscal side, the monetary policy side, which is different than it was coming out of the financial crisis a decade ago. This could ultimately lead to actually a regime change that does start to tick up the level of growth, the level of inflation, the lower rates. Not necessarily dramatically so, but definitely kind of breaks us out of this very low growth environment we had for a number of years. It's too early to say yet whether that's going to happen, but if it does, then this kind of reversion trade that we think could go at least in their six, nine more months, that could end up being like a two or three year trade. But that remains to be seen right now. Thank you, Jason, for providing that backdrop as well as that outlook. So as a follow-up for you, Laura Kane, if this reflation trade still has more runway, as Jason outlined for us, what are some ways that investors can still position for it? Sure, Dan. That's a great question. So, you know, like Jason said, given our outlook for a rebound in economic activity fueled by recovery from the pandemic and increased fiscal stimulus, we want to be positioning in risk assets that are highly levered to the business cycle, yet at the same time resilient to rising bond yields and inflation. So at the asset class level, we continue to prefer stocks over bonds. And within equities, we have a preference for U.S. small and mid-caps. And as Jason mentioned, we also recently upgraded U.S. large cap value. At the sector level, we have a preference for cyclical sectors, and particularly energy and financials. Uh, both sectors are well positioned for faster growth and are highly correlated with 10-year yields. Uh, these sectors have done well since the vaccine rollouts began, um, but even after strong performance, uh, we believe these sectors have more room to run and that valuations remain attractive. If we look back to the end of 2019, financials and energies uh, have underperformed the S&P 500 by about 10% and 36% respectively. So we expect to see further catch up as the economic picture improves and the yield curve steepens. Uh, we also expect oil prices to rise as global activity recovers and OPEC continues to exercise restraint on the supply side. And we don't believe that energy stocks are fully pricing in our expectations for oil. So that should serve as an additional tailwind for the sector. I would also note that the U.S. energy sector has the highest free cash flow and dividend yields in the S&P 500, which, of course, is attractive in a low-rate environment. Um, while we're on the topic of oil, uh, I would also note that select commodities like oil are another way to position for reflation. Uh, we forecast that WTI and Brent crude uh, will trade around $72 a barrel and $75 a barrel, respectively, by the end of 2021. Now, digging a bit deeper than the sector level, uh, we also have a positive view on select reopening winners, uh, which we detail in our Reopening America thematic stock basket. Uh, in that list, we highlight companies that stand to benefit from a resumption of normal activities. So examples would be select airlines, hotels, quick service restaurants, and apparel brands. Uh, and overall, we expect earnings for stocks in our reopening America basket to grow 58% on average in 2021, outpacing our S&P 500 earnings growth forecast of 28%. So to sum up, uh, we think the reflation tra trade still has legs and we see 
the best opportunities in those more cyclical pockets of the market. And importantly, we still see attractive valuations in areas like small and mid value, financials, and energy, even despite the recent outperformance that we've seen. Well, thank you, Laura, for the deeper dive into the thesis as well as the guidance on positioning. So, uh, Jason, part of the durability of the reversion reflation trade is the rate outlook. Rates have been on the rise. That's no secret over the past few weeks, and we've spoken about this on prior podcasts. So, given how rates have been trading recently, can you summarize CIO's view on rates? And given that outlook, Jason, where can investors find income when rates are still quite low? So on the you know uh, outlook for rates, we did revise our forecast for uh, you know rates across the the yield curve in the U.S. So you know, specifically for the ten year, we now expect it to get to uh, you know two percent by year end. You know it is just under one point seven percent today. So you know, further to go, but I think if we put in the context of the move that's happened thus far this year, where the ten year yield is already up about seventy five basis points. It tells us the bulk of the move has, has already happened. So that we think it's going to happen this year. So about 75% of the move is, is likely to is already happened at this point in time. The markets are clearly have, have, after sort of lagging equities last late last year on better news in terms of growth, fiscal policy on the vaccines. We've seen a real kind of catch up at this point in time. But now you know what the the markets are pricing this on the fixed income side and the, and the yield side is a recovery in growth and inflation. Uh, and if we look kind of further out, what you can see across you know different parts of the fixed income marketplace. You know, futures, uh, what they're pricing for rates, you know, three, five, ten years down the line. What they suggest is, you know, uh, the Fed ultimately is going to reach its target. Uh, and by that, too, I mean, you know, an uptick in inflation for the next couple of years, but then a moderation of inflation towards the Fed's long-term goal. If we look at where sort of, you know, the policy rates would be, they're kind of at the Fed's sort of long-term target of around 2.5%. Uh, and that's where we're even like, you know, five years out where the five-year yield is expected to be. So what the rates market overall saying is now they've kind of priced in, uh, you know, a better macro environment. But, you know, going back to this conversation about is it cyclical recovery versus, you know, the long-term trends, the market, the bond market still believes in this long-term trend. So it's now kind of, kind of priced in this cyclical recovery, but ultimately thinks we're going to get to this long-term trend, you know, after maybe a bit of acceleration in growth inflation this year. Uh, in order now to, to see a more significant uptick in, in growth and rates, we now start to see the actual economic data because uh, the market's priced in better growth and inflation, you know, maybe even got ahead of itself a little bit. So now we actually need to see the actual data before we get the next leg move you know, higher in rates. That, you know, this is probably more the second quarter story. Uh, and really to move substantially higher to kind of break out of this longer term trend, we need to see, you know, you know, combinations of, you know, higher growth, potentially higher inflation going forward than the Fed would tolerate, and that would allow rates to go a little bit higher. We're not talking dramatic moves, but you know, instead of you know two and a half percent, we could be talking about you know three to three and a half percent. I think right now it's, it's, the, the market sort of expects this long-term trend to continue. Given this environment, so where do we find sort of income opportunities? Uh, well, within the U.S., you know, one area that we would like to continue like is, is senior loans. Um, these are lower-rated interests uh, in, uh, or lower-rated credit quality. So to kind of you know, with Laura's point, things that would kind of be levered to the recovery. This is an asset class that could, could continue to do well. They're also floating rate instruments. So as rates rise, you know, they reset relative to interest rates. So they don't have the exposure of interest rate sensitivity that, for example, investment grade corporate bonds, which is something that for us is now currently at least preferred. It doesn't have that exposure. We've seen that sort of relative performance really play out even in the past month. Uh, you know, something like high yield, similar to senior loans, you know, lower credit quality, higher spread should benefit from the recovery. A little bit more rate sensitivity because it does you know, have interest rate exposure. So again, that's why we lean towards the loans versus high yield. Uh, you know, other areas that we would like, you know, preferred securities. 
Um, you know, these kind of you know, sold off a little bit this time of the year, haven't fully recovered, so still have a little more spread cushion uh, in an environment where, you know, there's not a lot of yield out there, there's not a lot of additional spread and risk compensation. So that's an area that, that we like right now is, is kind of the preferred security that can give you a little bit more cushion um, in this really kind of low-rate environment. Now that we have CIO's current view on rates, I want to circle back and tie this into growth stocks. So, Laura, growth stocks have been hit very hard by the rate rise, maybe more so than many investors would have expected. So, Laura, with the possibility that rates could go higher, as Jason alluded to, what's CIO's view on secular growth stocks? And, Laura, where do you see the best opportunities that could be resilient to these cyclical headwinds? Yeah, so you're right, Dan. It's been a difficult environment uh, for growth stocks. Uh, growth stocks, as you know, are long-duration assets, and their valuations have been negatively impacted by rising nominal yields. Uh, we've also just seen these stocks fall out of favor as investors rotate into cyclical sectors, which they expect to benefit from a reopening of the economy. Uh, compare this to last year, of course, we had a very different environment where we had the combination of low and falling yields and the stay-at-home trade, which favored these secular growth companies, especially those with exposure to digitalization trends. Um, But it's important to keep in mind that even though the current macro picture does not currently uh, favor secular growth themes, long-term drivers for these themes are still in place, and in some cases have actually been accelerated by the pandemic. So in light of that, we view the recent volatility as an opportunity to strategically build up some long-term positions in certain secular themes. Uh, last week, we put out an update to our report called Investing in the Next Big Thing, where we discuss our preference for four themes, which are health tech, fintech, green tech, and 5G. Uh, we believe that these themes offer relatively higher earnings growth potential versus the broader market over the next decade, and are also well-placed for digitalization and sustainability trends, which, of course, have strengthened during the pandemic. At the same time, uh, these themes offer diversification across a number of sectors. And importantly, many of the companies with exposure to these themes sit outside the technology sector, which was the best-performing sector over the past year and decade. And our research tells us that a sector rarely holds on to its top position over multi-decade periods, So if the last decade was all about investing in the technology sector itself, we think the next one is going to be about um, investing in those disruptors in sectors that are undergoing technological transformation. So just really quickly to touch on the four themes I mentioned. So fintech, uh, just as an example, we're seeing growth um, in digital payments, which saw a boost from uh, the surge in e-commerce during the pandemic. And according to a MasterCard survey that we follow, almost 7 in 10 consumers say the shift to digital payments will likely be permanent. Um, shifting over to health tech, healthcare is one of the largest yet least digitized sectors today. And the pandemic served as a reminder of the need to have robust, efficient, and accessible healthcare services in the future. Uh, some of the areas we see investment opportunities include telemedicine, wearables, and digital platforms for the management of chronic diseases. Green tech. Uh, This theme is highly levered to sustainability trends. We use this term green tech to refer to a set of technologies which will aid in carbon emissions reduction efforts worldwide. So examples include renewables, electric vehicles, uh, energy efficiency technologies, and semiconductors. Uh, Right now, we're seeing unified policy support for addressing climate change across a number of the world's largest economies from the U.S. to Europe to China. So this should be serve as a boost to companies with exposure to these areas. Uh, I would note that uh, a lot of these companies have done well 
Uh, so it's important for investors to take an approach that's well diversified globally and across sub-industries and along the supply chain and to really focus in on those companies with strong earning growth prospects and established business models. And then finally, 5G, the last theme, um, you know, as companies, uh, as industries undergo digital transformation, we're going to see a next generation of IT infrastructure emerge, and we believe 5G will be at the core of this. Uh, 5G is going to enable a massive network of Internet of Things. Uh, it's going to power various applications like autonomous driving and remote surgeries that really require very fast uh, connection speeds and low latencies. Um, so this is, you know, just one more area where we see really strong growth potential over the next decade and beyond. So I'll wrap it up there, Dan. Perfect. Thank you, Laura, for hitting on those longer term investment trends and the considerations for each that investors need to be mindful of. So, uh, Jason, the rate rise, as we've picked up on over the past few weeks, has delivered volatility into the equity market. So in these circumstances, how should investors respond to these bouts of volatility and the prospect of this continuing? Well, first, Dan, I think the volatility is likely to continue stay at an elevated level, and we will get every now and then episodes where you know, volatility surges, markets sell off, largely because in the macro environment, we'll remain volatile. So even though things are going to get better, it's almost like the upside to the, le- the right tail of things getting too good is, is, you know, creates its own risk. And we will see that in the second quarter, you know, when the economic data gets better, the growth data gets better, also inflation numbers get higher. There's going to be the question is, is what does the Fed do? How does it respond to that? I think there's still some uncertainty in the marketplace and among investors. What is the Fed's sort of reaction function to all this data? Uh, even though they've tried to be transparent and be clear, I think there's still uncertainty, which means if we get a very strong say, inflation number, that could cause you know, bond yields to rise. You could see equities you know, selling off. So this environment I think, is going to persist for a little while until we get through kind of some of the data that's going to be you know, very choppy. Uh, given that you know, volatility in rates that translates into volatile equities, I think instead of being kind of fearful, investors should sort of view it as one, something they can embrace and sort of try and take advantage of it. They should also try and look through some of the volatility. Um, if ultimately the fundamental picture hasn't really changed and the policy outlook hasn't changed, you know, these are just sort of you know, some noise in the short term for the markets as it continues to grind higher for looking at equity specifically, which means that, that the one thing that investors can do is sort of take advantage of it. Uh, you know, if there is a period of sell-off of, of a market's pulling back, here's a chance to actually add exposure to you underinvested areas in your portfolio to rebalance. So as Laura alluded to, you know, you know, in terms of some of the opportunities in, in the recovery trade, you know, investors still have a lot of maybe growth in their portfolio. This is a chance to kind of you know, shift around a little bit and add exposure to areas that could, you know, perform better in the macro environment. Uh, you can also sort of take advantage of high volatility through different kind of structured products or option strategies that essentially are trading implicitly on volatility. Uh, so there's things such as you know, you can, you know, you can buy covered or sell covered calls to kind of give up some of the upside, but harvest income that way. There's ways in which you can, you know, sell puts or, or, or buy puts for downside protection, uh, and, you know, to get, you know, uh, you know, op- some optionality on the upside. Uh, you can also use structured notes that have sort of embedded options in them, again, to sort of take advantage of high volatility. Uh, and then also just hedge fund strategies. You know, they tend to do well when volatility is high, when dispersion is wide, as we've seen thus far this year, uh, and sort of intra-asset class correlations are low. It tends to be an environment where, you know, those kind of strategies into alpha can be a little more, you know, generated. So as we think about this macro environment, 
Uh, it's going to create some dislocations, but also means there's opportunities and, and astute investors have a chance to pick that up and with certain type of strategies. So that's another area that I think investors can look at. Thank you, Jason, for the insights into how investors should respond to periods of volatility and some implementation considerations as well. So, Laura, as we're beginning to wrap up, maybe one more question for you on allocation. Anything else that comes to mind that investors should be considering right now when it comes to allocation? I know over the past couple of weeks, I've been speaking with your colleagues about CIOs investing in China publication, as well as ongoing conversations around the sustainability space. So anything within those areas you'd like to expand on? Yeah, sure, Dan. So I'll mention three quick uh, things to consider. So first, I would say um, consider pricing power stocks as a hedge against spouse of inflation. So we already spoke about how to position for faster growth and in inflation at the asset class level. But one idea we didn't mention yet was investing in companies with pricing power. Uh, we believe that companies with pricing power will be better able to maintain profitability in the face of rising input prices as temporary supply demand mismatches cause inflation to spike. So in our pricing power standout stock list, we identified companies with uh, pricing power based on a screening process that looks at market share, um, the size and stability of profit margins, and industry-level dynamics. Uh, the second thing would be consider exposure to China. As you mentioned, uh, strategically, we think allocations to Asia and China are crucial for long-term portfolio returns and diversification. We expect that by the end of 2022, real GDP will be 9% higher than it was in December 2019 for the U.S., but 18% higher for China. Uh, given this growth, um, you know, we think it makes sense for investors to get some exposure to the region. And today, many investors are actually under-allocated to China. I would also mention that China is a major market for a number of our long-term themes, including areas like smart infrastructure, 5G, green tech, fintech, and e-commerce. And then the final point, uh, sustainability. Uh, I would say, in particular, this idea of looking beyond the E and ESG. Uh, the events of last year brought into focus a number of ESG issues that actually fall under the S or social category. Uh, this includes things like supply chain management, employee health and safety, and also diversity and equality. Uh, we recently published a new report which showed that companies that promote diversity and equality throughout their value chains can deliver outperformance in the long run. So we definitely think that there's value in looking at these S considerations like diversity and equality uh, from an investment perspective. And we believe that going forward, these issues are only going to grow um, in focus and, and scrutiny on the part uh, of investors. So um, I'll leave you with that. So consider the S uh, and ESG as the final point. So that's it for me, Dan. Thank you, Laura. Well, Laura, Jason, thank you again for joining us today and providing the helpful insights that you did into a variety of ways that investors can consider allocation in light of the current environment that we're in, longer-term investment trends, as well as periods of volatility. So very helpful, very productive conversation this morning. I wish you both a great week ahead. Thank you, Dan. And Thanks, Dan. Absolutely. And again, today we have been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas, as well as Laura Kane, Head of Thematic Research Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. As a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can be located on UBS.com 
forward slash CIO. That includes the publications that Jason and Laura have been making reference to during our conversation today, positioning for the post-pandemic world and the UBS Houseview publication suite for April. Again, both pieces can now be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. want to highlight as well that you can join us for the monthly CIO live stream event, which will be taking place on Thursday, April 1st, and that can be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO live. That live stream will be occurring at 1 p.m. Eastern. Again, that is on Thursday, April 1st, and that can be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO live. For clients of UBS, you can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of any of the publications directly or have any follow-up questions on today's topics. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 